Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. My name is Ray. I am your host. Today is another restaurant review, and we're going to be talking about this is from Roy. So you're probably not super familiar with this. Um, this is from Roy is a online only, no brick and mortar, only you know nationwide shipping to the U.S. and Canada uh, bake shop, and they only bake one thing, and it's called Panettone, which is basically an Italian Christmas cake. Uh, if you've ever had it before, you've probably had shitty versions where it's just kind of this dry fruitcake almost. This is not that. This is, you know, I forget who said it, but they called it like the Rolls Royce of Panettone. But this is way beyond anything you've ever had before. So uh, the guy's name who kind of founded this whole operation, uh, his name is Roy Schwarzapel. Uh Basically, he was originally born in Israel. Grew up in Houston, Texas after his family moved there when he was two. All throughout high school, pretty much focused on basketball. He really wanted to make a professional career out of basketball. So after high school, he enrolled at Centenary College, which was in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, played Division One basketball there for two years and then transferred to the University of Houston when uh, Clyde Drexler was the head coach there. Played two years on the Houston team but never really learned how to kind of deal with the politics of getting to the next level. He was super hyper competitive, obsessed over the kind of the individual aspect of the game and instead of like the team success aspects. So that plus like a little bit of a lack of maturity and some stubbornness mixed in, he kind of clashed with coaches pretty frequently. And um, that didn't really help, you know, matters of, of him getting to the next levels. So he graduated with the uh, university of Houston, got a degree in journalism just because he had to basically major in something. Uh, it wasn't anything that he was interested in really pursuing. It was just like, what can I get kind of thing. And he just needed to do it also to be on, you know, eligible for the basketball team. So once he graduated, uh, he got a job working as a server at one of the original Carabas uh, restaurant locations. You've probably been to a Carabas, but this is one of the t- like two that aren't owned by Outback Steakhouses. So it's one of the originals, which are if you're going to go to a Carabas, that's where you need to go. I haven't been to one of the originals. I've been to one of the chain ones, and the chain was pretty decent. Um, so the original one's probably light years, you know, away from from whatever Outback is kind of corporatized uh, when they since they bought it. But he was working there basically to support himself. Was continuing his basketball training, trying to you know still make it to the next level, get an invite, something like that. Um, enjoyed the job, but was constantly kind of being drawn towards you know the kitchen uh, and what was going on in there. So. When he was 23, he actually got an invite to the John Lucas pre-NBA draft camp. Uh, wound up sustaining an injury kind of soon after the camp started. So that was kind of the moment he realized it was pretty much over for his basketball you know, aspirations. Uh, he wasn't going to be able to come back from an injury. And then at that point, he'd just be too old. And you know, he could maybe you know, go play overseas or something like that. But that wasn't really anything that he wanted to do. So he decided to move on to other prospects. He considered becoming a lawyer, but really wasn't in love with the idea. And then after he had a couple of friends who went to law school and once he heard just how like awful the LSATs were, he, he decided that wasn't anything he wanted to do either. So um, he just kind of started thinking about what did he want to do if money you know, wasn't the main motivating factor. Like if it was just about like something that I truly enjoy, like what did I want to do? So, you know, he wound up choosing cooking, wound up moving to New York, enrolled at uh, Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park. And when they went on summer break, like all the students went home, but he decided to go and stage at Elaine Ducasse's restaurant there. 
So two weeks, um, but he was able to observe kind of one of the best kitchens in the city in action. And that stint was also where he first learned of Panatone. So that was being used as like a takeaway gift for diners who would come in and they'd eat and they'd be sent home with some Panatone. And that was kind of his first encounter of it. And later he would find out that that was made by chef Frederick Rubber, who was making the Panatone. And he had been a corporate pastry chef for like 25 years and learned how to make that cake, you know, the Italian Christmas cake directly from chef uh, Ingino uh, Masari is his name. And he's over in Italy. So there'll be more on him. He comes up, comes up later in the story too. So uh, before he graduated in 2004, one of the instructors at the culinary school asked like all the students what their plans and aspirations were, you know, once they were finished with school and what they were going to go, you know, wanted to do and stuff. Roy basically said he wanted to work for three people. Pierre Hermé, uh, who was basically like the Michael Jordan of pastry chefs, uh, who he first discovered when he was looking through cookbooks at a Borders bookstore. Uh, Fernand Adria, who was the executive chef and owner at what most people call the best restaurant in the world or one of the best ever in El Bulli. And then Thomas Keller, who's, you know, the most famous chef in America, you know, French laundry per se, all that stuff. So Pretty much, you know, everybody laughed at him kind of uh, on that when, you know, he, he mentioned all that stuff. But once he, you know, got his degree and everything, um, he stumbled across this dessert shop that was getting ready to open. It was like a few blocks away from his friend's apartment. And he was staying at his friend's apartment, basically sleeping on the couch for like 200 bucks a month because he couldn't afford rent for his own place, obviously because, you know, low salary and everything. And he thought originally the shop was going to be a, the first like U.S. location for Pierre Hermé. Um, just because it had that vibe, that aesthetic, you know, all the desserts and everything. But it wound up actually being a place called Bully Bakery, which was an extension of uh, Bully's, you know, restaurants and, and everything like that. Very famous chef. A lot of people kind of understudied um, working at his restaurant, you know, when they were first getting their start. So the story goes that he basically knocked on the door. The only person that was working there um, was just a man who answered. He was the only employee. It was uh, Dominion Ergot. And he had been apparently Pierre Hermé's executive chef for like four years and was also the opening chef at Pierre Hermé's first location uh, on Rue Bonaparte in Paris, France, when he kind of started doing his own thing and, and his own branding and everything. So he was like basically just wanted to work there, just wanted to learn all that he could, um, you know, because he's super you know, into what Pierre Hermé was doing. So basically wound up offering to work at the shop for free, just wanted to learn. Uh, and Ergot told him to show up the next morning to get started. So he didn't get paid for like the first month that he worked at Bully Bakery. Uh, when he did start getting paid, it was basically less than what like a dishwasher would make. Um, so to make ends meet, he took on a second job at Tom Colicchio's craft. He was a server there and he'd work basically from 2 PM to about midnight, then go back to the apartment, sleep for a couple hours on the couch, then go to Bully Bakery and work there from like three to one, 3 AM to 1 PM. Um, and then, you know, would go to his other gifts. So he basically did that for five days a week and scheduled his two days off at both places on the same day. So he could just crash out and just catch up on all the sleep that he missed. He spent like the next eight months working at both, uh, craft and bully bakery until Pierre Hermé himself came to New York. He was there for a special dinner event for Elaine Ducasse. And while in New York, he stopped in at bully to see his friend Dominion. And uh, Roy was able to meet him uh, in person. And during that meeting, Pierre extended an invitation for Roy to come and work with him in Paris if he could ever find his way there. So immediately after that, Roy told Dominion 
you know, that he was going to go uh, and work over there once he had a year under his belt. So, you know, in like four months, like I'm going to be quitting here and I'm going to go to Paris and, and work uh, with Pierre Hermé. So he didn't have any money, uh, only had debt in his name of a form of credit card. So, but was able to find his way there thanks to his parents uh, who helped him financially as much as they could. And when he got there, he rented a room uh, in Paris and made his way to the bakery for the first two months, he worked without pay, didn't really care. He was there to learn. Uh, and then after the first two months, he started getting about 400 bucks a week. While there, he tried Panatone for the first time. It was the first time actually tasting it. Uh, and he basically got to witness like the entire staff go through the creation of it. The process itself was like super stressful. Everyone involved. It takes like 40 to 60 hours to make this thing. Uh, everyone was like incredibly anxious. It's just the length of the process, the unpredictability of the wild yeast that was being used. Uh, end result was, you know, rich but still light creation that he couldn't really explain, like, what it was. Couldn't imagine it was even, like, possible to create that thing and wonder why it wasn't sold, you know, and eaten year-round, you know, like other desserts like pie and stuff like that. So that was kind of how he also first heard about uh, Ingino Masari. Um, again, you know, his name comes up, you know, everybody's saying like, that's where, you know, kind of Pierre, you know, originally learned from, from Masari, you know, how to, how to make this dessert. So while there, he decided he also wanted to experience working in a traditional restaurant setting and asked Pierre to help him get in touch with, uh, either Michelle Bra or Fernand Adria. And Pierre's basic response was like, which one, like, which one do you want me to, to talk to? And so he decided on El Bulli and, and Fernand. So Pierre contacted Fernand about it like a month later. I guess he like casually walked up to Roy and just told him it was all set up and he would work, you know, the season at El Bulli. Uh, basically, he was at Pierre Hermé for about seven months and then took a train to Genora, Spain there, which is where El Bulli is. And um, he didn't know, you know, doesn't know Spanish, didn't know French, doesn't know Spanish, doesn't know Italian or anything like that. Uh, didn't have a room set up or anything, but basically walked from the train station to the entry of the park. And El Bulli is in like this on the beach of like this national park. So apparently it's like another seven miles from the entrance of the park to the actual restaurant. And a lot of it is uphill. So he was lucky enough that somebody came along and was headed that way and he was able to get a ride. Otherwise, uh, he probably wouldn't. He probably would have been like dark and the restaurant would have been closed when he arrived. Uh, once he was there, you know, introductions are made and everything. And they were kind of asking him like, well, where are you staying? And he's like, yeah, I'll figure it out. So he basically slept on the beach the first night, then got a hostel for a couple nights after that. And then somehow lucked into, uh, this couple had like a, a home that they were renting, but they had to leave immediately for some unknown reason. So he basically like fell backwards into being able to just, you know, rent this like home on the cheap, um, because these people left. So while he was working there, he came across uh, a shop in Rosas uh, that was Paco Torreblanca, uh, who was basically like, Paco Torreblanca is like the Pierre Hermé of Spain, essentially. Like Pierre, Pierre Hermé is, is like this French, you know, grandmaster pastry chef. And then Paco is like the Spanish grandmaster pastry chef, if that kind of makes sense. So uh, that shop there, he came across the shop, had Panettone. He tried some. It was extraordinary, just like, you know, he remembered it being at Pierre Hermé in Paris. So it came out, you know, to find that Paco uh, had learned from Ingino Masari. So basically Roy decided at that point, he's like, I keep hearing this guy's name. This is like how all these people learn. So he decided that, you know, when the season was over at Abuli, he was going to go to Italy. 
and, and learn about Panatone. And kind of when he was discussing it with some of the other Awuli co-workers, they were like, yeah, but they, like, you don't know where this guy is. You don't know Italian. You don't know, like, how are you going to do this? You know, all this stuff. They were just kind of trying to put doubt in it. Like, it doesn't make sense. But he figured it out. And uh, he made his way over to Fabrescia, which is like a small town outside of Milan. And that's where Masari's uh, Petisseria Veneto was located. That was like his, his bakery pastry shop. And made the three-mile walk from the train station to the shop. Um, basically, you know, discovered it was closed on Mondays. Was able to knock on the door. A person who answered only spoke Italian. They called Masari's son, who came down, basically knew enough English that they could kind of communicate. Roy kind of explained, like, why he was there. Son took him to meet, you know, his mom, uh, who was Masari's wife. And, you know, he was, like, out of town at the time, but we'll be back, you know, soon or whatever. So once Masari came back, um, his son translated, you know, pretty much the entire time. And cause Masari knew no English, Roy knew no Italian. So they're going through, you know, his son who kind of knew English at least enough. And, you know, Masari wound up showing him like his work, you know, using all these pictures and notes that he had in another room and everything took Roy to a nearby hotel. Uh, basically, you know, Roy gets there and he's like, I can't stay there. There's no way. So he's waiting for like Masari to leave. Masari leaves. He goes to the counter and is like, look, like, is there a cheaper place around town that I can stay? Like, I can't afford, you know, I don't have any money. Like, I can't afford to stay here. Masari turns out wound up paying in advance for his two-week stay at the hotel. And basically, you know, the worker told him that Masari said, you know, he's going to be here at 4 a.m. to pick you up uh, and get started. So next two weeks, Roy did nothing but like take photos, videos, notes while watching Masari and his team uh, create Panatone. Uh, he never made one himself, never helped. He just observed the process, uh, and his son kind of translated pretty much the entire time too. So once those two weeks were up, he headed back to New York, took a job as the pastry chef at uh, Balthazar, which was like uh, they had a big production facility. So that was like his first introduction to mass production of baked goods and pastries. Kind of got tired of New York after about like a year, so wound up um, moving to California, landed in San Francisco, checked in a hotel, didn't really have any plans of what he was going to do, just wanted different you know scenery, and was just kind of figure it out. Uh, started doing some fishing in the Bay Area, and one connection led to another connection, and and so on and so on. Eventually was able uh, to land the pastry chef position at Doug Keen's two Michelin starred restaurant Cyrus, which was up uh, in just north of Napa Valley in Hillsburg, uh, which is where um, Cyrus is supposed to reopen too. It's closed for a number of years. Uh, he's supposed to reopen it, uh, but Hillsburg is also where um, Single Thread Farm, you know, that restaurant's up there too. That's a three Michelin star restaurant. So uh, it's a it's a cool little town, but experience was very important. You know, being at Cyrus there for his development, it was just being in the Michelin starred kitchen and trying to achieve the third star. It was just constant, continuous pressure pushing the envelope and attempt to achieve a third star while he was at Cyrus. He basically was, you know, that was kind of his first time that he was actually kind of pushed and had to figure out how to adapt and problem solve each and every day. And, uh, he was there for three and a half years, um, at the restaurant, but basically towards the end of his time there, he started practicing making Panatone uh, a little bit in his off time and, and it actually turned out pretty good. Um, but he just wound up wanting a break from the high stress, high demand kind of Michelin lifestyle. So took, uh, basically left the restaurant, took two weeks off from cooking completely. And then about after two weeks, like he got the itch to bake again. So he decided to give Panatone like a legitimate try and, and reached out to a guy he knew 
who had a, like a 5,000 square foot wholesaler baking facility in Heldsburg was able to use a, you know, part of that space to make Panatone for the holidays. Didn't have the hanging apparatus, but was able to borrow two grand from his dad to buy 20 hangers at a hundred bucks a piece from a manufacturer in Italy. And once he got those, he made 200 Panatones, uh, made a poster at FedEx to use to advertise uh, for like this kind of two day sale that he was doing right around the holidays. Uh, he, he had a friend that had an organic grocery market called Shelton's. So that's where he kind of set up and and was charging 40 bucks uh, for a Panatone, chopped one up for samples, wound up selling 20 in the first hour and then sold all 200 uh, by the end of kind of the two day, two day sale there. So then over the course of the next year, uh, he did three consulting jobs for like large scale industrial baking companies, you know, the types of places that make like 200,000 croissants in a day type shit. So 2011, opportunity to move to L.A., be on the opening team of Thomas Keller's Bouchon and Beverly Hills came up. So he was finally able to cross off the third name from his, you know, chefs to work for list. Spent about a year there, then headed over to Nairobi, Kenya to consult for Nairobi Java House, which was this company founded by an American over like 20 years ago that had 18 different locations and a centralized baking commissary that supplied them all. Experience was life-changing essentially live like a Kenyan, uh, ate with his coworkers and their families, saw where they lived, uh, saw how happy everyone was with like one one hundredth of what Americans have and just kind of a good reality check. And experience gave him a lot of perspective on what's important in life and what, you know, was very motivating and, and that kind of led to him opening a restaurant of his own. So 2014, he opens his own bakery and cafe called Common Bond in Houston. It's at the corner of Dunn, Dunleavy and Westheimer uh, in the heart of the Montrose kind of neighborhood. Growing up, he used to kind of sit on the patio, I guess, across. Uh, There's a restaurant across the street called Brazil. And he would, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be a cool spot for a restaurant. If you could tear down that building. And, and you know, so that's kind of what he did. Um, bakery was everything he wanted it to be. So it was like avant-garde, uh, modern approach to the cafe experience that encompasses the savory, the bread, the pastry, gelato. Everything was executed at the highest levels, had an open kitchen, uh, completely transparent to the guest perspective, fresh bread coming out of the ovens every 30 to 45 minutes. Basically, it was this complete, unique experience city of Houston had never seen before. You know, it was an up-and-coming food scene at the time when he was opening this, so it, it seemed like the right fit, too. Uh, he wound up getting a bunch of different former co-workers to join and move to Houston, um, he really only was hoping to get one, uh, somebody they kind of rely on. He got a bunch. So he wound up getting like David Morgan, who he worked with. Uh, he was at August restaurant, but also at Cyrus where he worked with him. Uh, he was the chef de cuisine at common bond drew Gimma. He was, uh, met up with him at, uh, Bouchon Beverly Hills. He also worked at, uh, drew also worked at per se. He wound up becoming the head baker, Tony Steen. Um, he was at Bouchon Beverly Hills too, as well. He was an assistant baker. Assistant bread baker, I should say. Uh, Jillian Bartolome, she, you know, another Bouchon person uh, in New York and, and Cyrus too as well. But uh, she became the executive pastry sous chef. So, and he even got some people, you know, from local kind of restaurants that reached out to, they wanted to join the the operation. That kind of ruffled some feathers. There was people that like were accusing him of like poaching their employees and stuff. And he's like, I didn't reach out to anybody. They reached out to me. So if they want to come work here, like that's not my fault. Like that that's your fault that they want to leave your place to come here. So after he opened, uh, pretty much like 
Named the pastry chef of the year by the Houston Culinary Awards. Common Bond was named the city's favorite bakery. Houston Press named it uh, Common Bond to the 25 Best New Restaurants list for 2014. Houston Chronicle critic Allison Cook included Common Bond on her top 100 restaurants list. She put it at number four. And he wound up starting sell- selling Panettone to occasionally a Common Bond. And whenever he did, customers would line up you know, for over an hour um, before the restaurant opened just to try and get one. So it became kind of its own viral thing. Ultimately, things with the business partners that he had, uh, I think it was Brad and Kathy Sanders, they just didn't go as well as he had hoped. So in March 2015, he split from the partnership, left Common Bond altogether. Uh, his wife, Talia uh, Kurkowski, who she worked for a global branding company called Profit um, at the time, and she encouraged him to just focus on just the Pantone instead of doing another bakery or cafe, um, just due to the price point. So it had good margins, giftability, the shelf life, uh, because like it can last for one to two months just you know on your counter. And she suggested he does the whole thing virtually, no brick and mortar storefront, just a website, sell it online, ship nationwide to US and Canada. And uh, they were kind of the founders and they funded the venture themselves. Uh, he moved to San Francisco because that's where her, her uh, company's headquarters were and uh, wound up kind of settling in the Richmond neighborhood of Oakland, uh, which was just across the bay, uh, and hired the same strategy firm that they used for Common Bond, which was Base Design. And they created the name, packaging, marketing uh, for Roy's Panettone, and settling on the name, you know, this is from Roy. So when he was opening Common Bond, he kind of linked up with David Kinch, who's the chef at Manresa. Uh, he was getting ready to open Manresa Bread with Avery Ruzica, who we have a page on the website uh, about two of both those, uh, both David and Avery, because I've had both of their products. I've been to Manresa and then also have ordered Manresa Bread online. So would recommend doing that if you haven't, but or check those pages out, whatever. Shameless plug in the middle of a podcast, don't care. But um, so he connected with him and basically he Kinch wound up sending some of the bakers down to Houston to just kind of observe the operations at Common Bond. And so when he moved to the Bay Area, he invited Roy to use part of the Manresa bread space that they were getting spun up. Uh, so he was able to move his uh, diving arm mixer in so he could kind of get things started for his Panettone company, which he officially launched December 10th, 2015. Uh, basically finally created an Instagram account around that time too as well. Just a one-man band, did everything from the baking, the packaging, shipping after launch, um, and basically was commuting from Oakland to Los Gatos daily to make it all work. Sometimes he'd sleep you know, there or even sleep in his car just for three to four hours just to keep up with demand at first. And in just the 10 days remaining for sales in the month of December, you know, kind of after he launched, but before, you know, really the the holiday end of the holiday shipping period, you know, for Christmas, he wound up selling over 500 Panettones and, um, you know, just did all he did was social media and word of mouth, uh, was basically, you know, how all that happened. Somebody wind up, wound up giving, uh, Wiley Dufresne, uh, who had a Michelin starred restaurant at the time called WD 40, um, gave one of the Panettones to Wiley. He tweeted, I guess, about how delicious it was. A woman saw the tweet and responded in kind of like a snarky kind of message that she never got the ones that she ordered. So when Roy saw it, he checked. Sure enough, he forgot to send hers out, reached out to her directly, overnighted her four um, just to make up for the mistake. Uh, a couple days later, he got a call from a woman wanting to do a story on him and his Panettone. And he kind of thought it was a joke at first, but then realized 
that it was a woman by the name of Charlotte Druckmann who was working for the New York Times. So she wound up doing a profile on him and, and the business and everything. And that ran uh, a month later at the end of January. So it was like a full page article and it just blew up the demand for, for his Panatone. The following year, he made uh, a special flavor, a raspberry pistachio milk chocolate one for Valentine's Day. Everybody thought he was crazy and that it wasn't gonna work. Uh, he wound up basically selling almost a thousand. So it was like double what he sold for Christmas, uh, like two months prior. For Christmas 2016, uh, Del Popo owner, John Darcy, he ordered two, but mistakenly received four. So with supplies limited, Roy was able to contact him, track him down. They met up on the side of the freeway so he could get the extra two back that mistakenly got sent to him and the kind of like the double order thing. They kind of became friends, bonded over, you know, their love of naturally fermented doughs. And in the following summer, Darkski began putting it on the dessert menu by the slice uh, for like 11 bucks and routinely gets like a dozen orders a night for it. Few months later, you know, October 2017, Maza2Go in LA, which was um, this concept, uh, takeout kind of concept started by Mario Batali, uh, Joe Bastinich, and Nancy Silverton. Um, they started selling the whole Panatones there. Uh, Silverton used to make some herself uh, at La Brea Bakery when she found it before she sold it, but she said Roy's was far superior than anything she ever made, and, and that's why they put it on the menu there instead of them doing it themselves. Once into the holiday season for 2017, uh, Schwarzbull, he wound up partnering with Williams-Sonoma to sell limited quantities of Panatone in their stores. Following year, uh, he partnered with Blue Bottle Coffee and Whole Foods to sell it regularly in their shops and stores too. End of 2018, Oprah included it on her favorite things of the year list. Um, so that's just more kind of viral word of mouth marketing. You know, it's considered kind of the Mount Everest of baking endeavors just because it's it breaks all the traditional baking rules. So, you know, it's eight inches tall, weighs about two and three quarter pounds. Um, wild yeast gives it a deep flavor, tremendous height. Five-week shelf life uh, can even push that to kind of almost eight weeks, uh, sometimes two as well. Uh, basically, if you didn't have kind of all the, the right ingredients, it just turns into like a brioche with some fruit. So 40-hour process starts with feeding wild yeast with water and flour. 80% of that flour has been pre-fermented. Um, basically does feeds it with flour and water three times in a half-a-day span. Then the yeast is mixed in with more flour and water along with sugar, butter, egg yolks. Uh, dough then proofs for 12 hours before being mixed with more flour, water, sugar, egg yolk, some salt, and some flavoring. Then it rests before being divided into molds and proofing again. Once fully proofed, it's baked for an hour and immediately suspended upside down to cool overnight. So... There's nothing else like it if you've never had it before. I mean, it's, I think, 68 bucks, and that includes shipping through This Is From Roy. Um, I originally kind of stumbled upon it, I think, just doing uh, some searches on, like, Gold Belly. He was on there for a while. It, it, he still has a page on Gold Belly, but it just has sold out. Just go through his website directly if you want to get some. It's, I mean, it's a big, you know, it's a big cake, um, but it's super delicious, you know, I think we've had three different flavors so far. Uh, we usually kind of give some of it away just, you know, because we can't eat all of it ourselves. Um, triple chocolate was just, it was crazy good. It was just like, 
you just got all this the chocolatiness that you would want. I mean, it was made from chocolate dough, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, and cocoa. You just smelled it as soon as you opened the box. Um, and it comes in a bag, this kind of thick plastic bag that you keep it in just to keep kind of the air out so it doesn't dry out. Um, there's probably a better way to, to, if you had like an airtight container or something like that, but you'd have to have a pretty big airtight container to fit this in there. But maybe you could use one when you get down to, you know, when it gets half the size or something like that. I'm not sure. But it, the chocolate one was just, you get like, it's just pure chocolateness, but it's not like overly sweet. It's not sugarly, you know, sugar chocolate or anything like that. It's just, I don't know. It's just basically like if you made the best chocolate milk and turned it into this moist cake, essentially is, is all I can describe it. The other flavors, uh, so there's a pistachio chocolate cherry one. I actually kind of think that might be a bit better than the chocolate. It just, it's super creamy, but you get this nutty flavor. Uh, then you get these tart cherries, you know, that are scattered randomly throughout this, this burst of like brightness, nice, you know, the sprinkles on the outside, there are these large sprinkles, just pure sugar, but, um, they're, they're so good too. And then, you know, as it sits on the counter too, um, over time, the, the sugar, the sugar sprinkles, like they just melt kind of into the, the outside of the panettone. So you, I mean, you have a pool of them usually at the bottom of the bag that fell off, you know, in, in shipping, but there's still plenty on the actual Panatone itself, even with all the ones that, that fall off. But yeah, they just melt into kind of the outside. Uh, so you always get that sugary kind of sweetness too, as well. The other flavors that we had. So the next one was a strawberry caramel, strawberry chocolate caramel flavor. And that was pretty good. Uh, you could definitely taste like the strawberry flavor in there. It was probably though, out of the first three, like probably my least favorite. I think the pistachio is definitely my first favorite. And then the, uh, the triple chocolate one. The fourth flavor we wound up getting was just their classic chocolate. I think it was like the first um, flavor that Roy ever kind of produced and shipped out. It's kind of real old school. They haven't done it in a while, I guess, according to his Instagram. So they brought it back for, for a little bit, for a month. That was really good. It's very similar to the triple chocolate, except uh, it's a little bit lighter. I think I like the triple chocolate one better, but this is still very, very good. It's kind of almost like if you were eating uh, a chocolate chip muffin with like a sugar crust on top, kind of got a yellow um, colored interior and then chocolate chips kind of scattered throughout, but still very, very delicious. Just, I think I like the triple chocolate one just a touch better just because it had that like milkier kind of flavor. And then the other one, um, lemon caramel was kind of a new flavor that they did. That was actually really good. Uh, you get a little bit of the lemon, but it's not overpowering. It's not sour. And then you get kind of some swirls of caramel in there and gives it kind of a, a sweet, um, kind of savory flavor too, as well. I like the lemon caramel, but I think the lemon blueberry that they did after it was better. Uh, basically tastes like a blueberry muffin with like a sugar crust on it. So it's super delicious. I think either probably the pistachio or the lemon blueberry is my favorite. Um, I would rank them. I would rank them this way. I would go the pistachio um, one was probably number one. Uh, lemon blueberry two, the triple chocolate three, lemon caramel uh, four, uh, normal chocolate five, strawberry uh, chocolate caramel would be six. So we we've had six of these. Um, so you know, I think it's kind of for me. It's probably. Um, more so about kind of when there's two different ingredients incorporated in the flavor, like something that's got uh, some texture to it, like a chocolate chip or a blueberry or pistachio or, or cherries or something like that versus it being like 
lemon caramel where it's the lemon flavor and then you get some of the caramel in there, but there's nothing, there's no chunks of anything. I'm uh, definitely, when it comes to, I think, Panettone and ice cream, I'm definitely like a chunk person. I want something else in there. So um, but they're all very, very delicious, but I, I would think, you know, I think the lemon uh, or the, yeah, the lemon blueberry and then the pistachio. Uh, I think it was like the pistachio one was definitely uh, my two favorites so far out of the ones I've had. But um, you can find them, you know, on Instagram. You can follow them on Instagram. This is at, this is from Roy is their Instagram. Uh, so check all them out. He went on the David Chang podcast like a couple years ago. That's where I got a, a decent amount of this information aside from kind of different uh, interviews and stuff that he did, whether it was when he was in Houston and right or kind of around the time when he launched. This is from Roy too as well. But um, the David Chang podcast is pretty long, uh, but I kind of covered pretty much all the main highlights that you'd probably need. So, uh, But you can check it out if you want. Um, it's up to you on there. But uh, yeah, make sure to check them out on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram too as well if you're not, at Spoonma. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we don't really do too much with those. Uh, a lot of it's linked through the Instagram, but you know you can give us a follow there too as well. But mainly, just make sure that you're following the Instagram page primarily uh, for all kind of news and updates and posts and pictures and, and all that good stuff. Make sure to listen to the chefs and guest episodes. So we've done a, a good amount of those. I think we're probably um, up to 12 that have been released so far. Just brought on an editor, uh, Andrew Herman, over at uh, Track Edit Print. You can find him on the socials. That's his social handle there. But um, yeah, really excited that Andrew kind of came aboard. Um, we were able to get him. And um, yeah, he's going to be editing the, the chefs and guest podcast. So we got a uh, intro music um, too as well that's now in there from Cabalastic Village. Uh, you can find him on SoundCloud. Um, you can also find him. It's CabalisticVillage.com. Uh, so it's K-A-B-B-A-L-I-S-T-I-C Village.com. Find all his music there. Um, so shout out to him. Thank you so much for providing uh, some music for us to kind of choose from and everything. He basically released a bunch of stuff that didn't really... Um, kind of fit with his catalog and he released it on reddit for everybody to kind of use for different podcasts and we were able to kind of find something that kind of fit with um what we were doing you can find a lot of his music on like audio jungle too as well um but uh saved beds at gmail.com is his email um he's got a, a patreon page too as well and and paypal so check out his music uh if you like it and you want to support him make sure you do so um, but, uh, shout out to him for giving us the, the intro music there to use on the chefs and guests episodes. Um, so yeah, we got, uh, music, we got an editor, um, in there doing stuff too, as well. We got like six episodes just in the hopper, just getting edited up, coming out. Um, Andrew's also going to go back and do a remaster, the ones that we've already released, the ones that I edited. I think like the first three, I didn't even do any editing. So, um, so he's going to clean those up too, as well make them sound better. So if you haven't checked those episodes out before, uh, or if you did, you might want to go back and listen to them because they'll sound a little bit different. They'll sound a little bit better um, too as well. So we always want to, you know, promote the the past episodes that we did because, every, you know, anybody who came on the podcast, um, we're super thankful that they did. Um, it's just uh, really awesome to be able to talk to those people and, and everything. Uh, make sure to check out Parts Now Known. Um, me and Ben do that. That's rewatching Anthony Bourdain episodes in chronological order. Uh, so we're in the middle of season five now. So, um, you know, if you haven't listened to those or, or anything like that, those come out on Wednesdays. So make sure to check those out. 
That's also up on the website too as well. So uh, if you go to the podcast part, drop down on the website, you can get to the chefs and guests, which will give you links to each individual chef's episode. Same with Parts Now Known is up there. And we got a little uh, photo icon so you can figure out um, which episode it is too as well. We're ranking them as we go. So they're not in order on the website, but they are. Um, we are going through them in order as they get released. So if you're watching along, I think uh, we're on season five. Uh, Scotland is coming out uh, this Wednesday. So I think that's episode two technically. Um, so getting to the middle, I guess, of season five. Uh, restaurant reviews, those come out on Mondays. Um, that's pretty much me just talking about, like, just like this podcast here, you know, giving some background on a chef. Um, if I haven't done anything um, with them before. And then also kind of talking about their cuisine and food that we had. Uh, if it's a chef that did come on the podcast, um, usually it'll be uh, they came out with a new menu. And it's our experience with the, the new menu, new courses and stuff like that. There are updates going on to the website. So uh, if you go, pretty, it's pretty much happening um, in alphabetical order. So the A's and the B's are all, all done. But if a restaurant review podcast came out, uh, I am reformatting that page. So it'll just have a grid underneath um, that's linked with the episode. That's all the courses that I talk about in that episode. So it's all kind of packaged together so you can figure out what I'm referencing. Um, if it's too you know difficult to go through the Instagram, uh, the backlog on Instagram, the, the previous posts and stuff and find out what exactly I'm talking about, um, you can go right to the website. It's right on there. It's all in a nice little package so you can figure out what I'm referencing in that episode. Um, as you're listening to it or, you know, the pictures are there, you know, so you can view if you couldn't find them on Instagram or something like that too, as well. So doing that for everybody, um, it's just going to be a slow kind of rollout, just kind of going through handful of pages each day and, and getting that updated. Um, it's just, it's just time consuming more so than anything else than doing the reformatting. So get that up there. Also new on the website is going to be the sommelier, uh, page. So we have sommeliers coming on the podcast. Those will be part of the chefs and guests episodes. Those are coming out. Um, we did a, a few different ones so far. I think we got like four Somalis that we've had on. So we'll build out a little page so you have all their contact info and a, and a link right to the episode that they did too as well. That'll all be up there, but that's all in the Somalier drop down. Another drop down that's going up there is the industry drop down. So that's anybody who comes on the Chefs and Guests podcast and isn't a chef or a Somalier. So beverage director, restaurant owner something, you know, uh, food critic, food blogger, journalist, whatever, something along those lines. Um, that's where they're, you can find them just because they won't have any food courses, um, you know, for us. So, but they're not a SOM or a chef. So we wanted to have their own drop down. So that'll be up there too, as well. You'll see it there. The drop down is live. There's nothing under it. So if you click it, does it go anywhere? Don't freak out. Uh, the first one, um, will be coming up. I think at the beginning of July is kind of when that tab will officially go live. So, don't freak out if you're clicking on that and you're like, why isn't this working? It's, it's not supposed to really work like right now, but I just want to give everybody a heads up. So those are uh, some of the major updates to the website that I'm doing. Like I said, um, awesome to have, you know, all these, you know, people that we're able to partner with and, and everything in the podcast and, and really kind of push it to the next level. So we got a few more things in the works. Uh, there is something cool that's coming out at the end of June, beginning of July. Uh, I am not going to tell you what that is. You're just going to have to keep an eye, but I will put it out on social media when it does happen. Um, really, really cool that uh, that this thing did happen. Super excited about kind of it launching us to, I think, uh, the next level and helping us get the word out. So that's going to be pretty awesome once that happens. And um, yeah, help, continue to help spread the word. 
um, you know, we keep growing uh, every month. So it's pretty awesome to see kind of that growth trajectory just continue to rise. So continue to help spread the word, um, let people know that, you know, there's this cool food podcast that you can listen to and doesn't just cover Columbus. Um, it covers different, you know, cities and chefs and, and everything like that too. And um, have a lot of fun doing it. So really, in, you know, enjoying it so far. Definitely appreciate all the support. Uh, everybody who's written in with, you know, feedback, comments, questions, you know, had somebody write in and was like, what's, what's up with the sommelier tab on there? And, and I just told them what it was, you know, so if you have any questions or anything, feel free to submit those through the website too, as well. Always recommend poking around out there. There's always new chef bios and stuff that I'm working on trying to get up to as well. So, um, and then the one other thing is too, when we don't have, uh, going forward to when we don't have a chef's and guest episode scheduled for release on a Thursday, we're going to release another restaurant review. Uh, we have a pretty big backlog of those, so we want to try and get through as many of those as we can this year um, in the second half of this year. So that way, when we do have like a new restaurant or, uh, you know, a restaurant experience that we can just record it right away and put it out um, for the next, you know, slot that's coming up and then be able to put all the course photos and everything right on the website with no description. So um, if it's, you know, some place that we've never done a restaurant review on, You'll still have all the course descriptions with the photo of the course. But once that restaurant review comes out, it just gets collapsed into just the photos because the descriptions are already in the, the podcast episode that I did. So that's where you can find the breakdown of what was good, what was bad, you know, too acidic, too much vinegar, what have you. Um, so that's kind of how it'll be going forward. I think it's really it's really going to help improve kind of the user experience um, with clicking around on the website from your, either your phone or even uh, through a laptop. And it's definitely going to help um, with the podcast and everything too, as well. So yeah, we definitely want people to be following the Instagram, listening to the podcast, subscribe, follow the feed, um, Apple podcast, Spotify, we're on all that stuff. So those are kind of the big uh, updates. There'll be some more stuff to come too as well. Uh, we'll sit down and probably do like a, a podcast just about everything, kind of run through it so everybody kind of knows what's going on. But um, super excited. Really, really appreciate everybody. And we will talk to you guys later.